Time for a visit from Dr. Bernice Shafarik from Shafarik Dental in Columbia. Every time we have Bernice on, we have somewhat of a theme to examine on that day. And Bernice's theme today is, are you sleeping? Wait a minute. That is a show about dental work and dentistry. Bernice, good morning. What's with are you sleeping? Good morning, Wayne. Well, first of all, I just wondered how many people would pick up the musical connection as when I was a child, there was a song that was called Are You Sleeping, Brother John? And it turns out that it's a pretty international song. So when I was a kid and we were bored in the car, my mom would have us sing it in English, in Polish, and in French. And then she taught us it in German. So Are You Sleeping is a worldwide topic. And Sleep just has such an impact on every other aspect of our lives that it intrigued me when I started to see that people were offering courses for dentists in sleep. So I actually went through the process of doing all of the exams and the accreditation and became a diplomat in the American Academy of Dental Sleep Medicine. So what that means is... Sleep is such an important issue that we need to be paying aware of it, because, paying attention to it, because it impacts every area of our lives. Um, some of the impacts in dentistry are that it will increase, we'll talk in more detail about this, but it'll increase your rate of decay, it'll increase your instance of gum and bone infection, it will influence where your teeth develop. So it's conceivable that if we were smart enough to treat every infant and toddler, that nobody would end up with crooked teeth. So sleep and dentistry have a whole lot to do with each other. And a really important concept for me over the years has been that I really want to treat the patient who's attached to the teeth. I don't want to just treat the teeth that are attached to the patient, mostly because that doesn't give you long-term success. So every person who walks in through my door has a whole set of medical and social and psychological issues that are changing what happens in their mouth. So if, for example, outside of dentistry, if you have somebody who has steps in front of their house that are crumbling and they fall, we can fix their broken leg. But if we don't fix the crumbling steps, they're going to keep breaking their leg. And that's not a long-term satisfying career when you're just doing the same thing without affecting a change. So for my patients who have recurring problems, Sleep could be part of the issue that's leading to them not getting healthier. So to put another way, are you telling me if I get more sleep, my dental health will improve? Yes. That's what I'm telling you. As long, well, it depends on whether you're getting the adequate amount of sleep. Amount and quality are really important. So I think um, a lot of people have been hearing about how there's an association of heart disease with dental health, and there's an association of pregnancy, you know, low birth weight and premature births with 
oral health. There are associations of cancer with oral health. So one thing that all of those things have in common is inflammation. And inflammation can occur when you don't have the chemical balance that's created while you're sleeping to help you deal with inflammation. That's why sleep is so important. Is the patient attached to the teeth or are the teeth attached to the patient? You know, exactly. That's, I think, that um, a problem in my profession is it's very easy to get so focused on one area. And it's not just dentistry. I think in all of medicine that becomes a problem because, you know, if you're um, a lung specialist, you tend to really see the things that lead to lung problems, but it's harder to see the whole picture sometimes. And I firmly believe that dentistry has a gift. Dentistry is one of the few areas of medicine where prevention is really important. I think that medicine would love to go in that direction, but our medical insurance model is not created for that. So, for example, when I have a young child come in to me for their appointment, and I look in their mouth, and let's say they're four years old, and they already are showing that their teeth are not developing in the right position. It looks like they might end up needing braces. We talk to the parents, and they say, yeah, you know, either they're a very restless sleeper, so when they put them down to sleep at night, they're in a totally different position. Or, you know, there are sleepwalking problems or bedwetting problems, or maybe they've noticed that their child does a lot of mouth breathing or that they may be making noise at night. Sometimes people say it doesn't really sound like snoring, but there's more noise from breathing. All of those things are indicating a problem with the airway. And all of those things are things that I can look in the mouth and see. So I can look in the mouth of a four-year-old and say, looks like you might develop sleep apnea down the road. The medical model is more, oh, you had a heart attack, or we have to treat you for high blood pressure. Oh, why don't we test for sleep apnea? By that time, there's so many changes in the anatomy of the airway and the whole system that it's a very difficult challenge to correct that. Do you actually discuss this with your patients when they come in, like when they're before uh, they work on their mouth, you say, you get enough sleep? I do. And actually, the American Dental Association came out with a statement probably about five years ago saying it's kind of our obligation to do that. And then prosthodontic community, which is the specialists who do dentures and crowns and bridges, they also came out with that statement. I believe the American Academy of Pediatrics has also put that into their protocol that we need to be asking about sleep. So the challenge is, I, especially with young kids, I see something in their mouth and we start to talk about sleep. So in this world of ours, I think there is a little bit of a problem with credibility when you're in a health profession. I mean, it's led to people really thinking that, you know, they need to make 
decisions about their health, and they're not necessarily looking for guidance the way that I think could be appropriate. So before I say anything about that, sometimes I will look in the mouth. So I'll look in the mouth, let's say, of a young adult, and there's this what we call scalloping on the side of their tongue. So you can see that it looks like there's not enough room for their tongue in their mouth. Now, why would that be? Mostly, it's because when they're trying to breathe, the uh, system they have doesn't have enough room for their tongue. And that's development that happened way, way long ago. But the, the end effect that I see, for example, is that their tongue looks like it has marks on the side of it, or they have a bite that's open in the front, even though they had braces. And a lot of them will tell me, oh, I had braces, but everything went right back to where it was. All of those things indicate that developmentally things didn't end up in the right place. Who knew there was a connection between sleeping and dental work and dentistry? Are you sleeping? Our topic this morning with Dr. Benice Shafarik from Shafarik Dental in Columbia. We'll get back to our sleeping topic. Here's a little piece of Are You Sleeping? Brother John that she just talked about. So give me a couple of specific examples, Bernice, about the effect that sleep might have on your dental health. So when we think about um, how teeth develop, we have to remember that they grow within the bone. So where the bone goes, the teeth will go. So if we think about an infant who you can't see any teeth in there, I can tell you there are teeth underneath the gum and the bone there. And in order for them to come into the right place, the tongue position is hugely important because we have a saying in the health world that if bone and muscle had a fight, that muscle would win. So muscle can move bone. So thinking about that, where the tongue of an infant sits determines the shape of the roof of the mouth. So in a healthy situation, that tongue comfortably fits into the roof of the mouth, and the roof of the mouth then becomes the floor of the nose. The important thing about that is we need to be breathing through our noses, and I know we've had shows about this before, but it is so much healthier to breathe through your nose. When you breathe through your nose, it warms the air, it filters bacteria and other things out of the air that comes through. It also adds some chemicals that makes your blood vessels pick up the oxygen quicker. If you breathe through your mouth, all of that disappears. And then we end up having to have tonsils and adenoids be responsible for trying to filter when that's not supposed to be the situation. You're supposed to be breathing through your nose. So what would, what difference does it make where your tongue is and how do you get your tongue in the right position? So in nature, we have the concept of breastfeeding. And if mothers are breastfeeding their children, automatically they cannot breathe through their mouth because the breast encloses where they're feeding and they have to breathe through their nose. 
you don't have that same situation when you're bottle feeding. You also have to exert a certain amount of pressure with your muscles to get milk from the breast. So that, again, builds the tongue muscle, puts it in the right place to make everything naturally work out. Now, there's a whole lot of reasons why mothers don't end up breastfeeding. Sometimes the reason they don't end up breastfeeding is because the infant is born with what we call a tongue tie, and that can be where it's tongue-tied in the front of the tongue or in the back. Either of those things will prevent the infant from being able to put their tongue in the appropriate position to be able to breastfeed. So the good thing is, if that's noticed right away and corrected, it can make a huge impact. If that's not the reason that people are avoiding breastfeeding, there's going to be a compensation because when you're drinking through a bottle, you can still mouth breathe. Everything is arranged so that the liquid gets into your system very easily. You don't have to build your muscle in the appropriate way to make that happen. I was thinking about that, that there should be someone who invents a better bottle that's more like breastfeeding. That might help with this situation. What's the relationship between sleeping and increased gum and bone infection? So um, when you have unfortunately developed a system where the tongue is not resting in the appropriate position, it can block the airway. It can also make changes in your bite and the way that your teeth align. So you've seen people with what we call an anterior open bite. Their front teeth can never come together, so they have to make an adaptation. And we as humans are wonderful at making adaptations, but it comes with a price because every time that you try to eat, you have to do something with your tongue to make sure that the food goes into the appropriate place. And so that can change the whole system, including making the airway narrower and making it even harder for you to breathe through your nose. So if you have that situation, it goes in combination with some unfortunate things like if you're breathing more through your mouth, your mouth gets dry. Your mouth doesn't like to be dry. Saliva is our first line of defense against cavities and gum infections. So sometimes we'll have a four or five-year-old come into my hygienist and she'll notice that their front gum tissues are very red and inflamed. And her immediate thought is, are they a mouth breather? Because that's what's causing this problem. But once they do that, the gums are red and inflamed. And then as time goes by, it's harder to get people to floss and brush when it feels like, oh, it hurts when I do that. But it's a cycle. The other issue that happens is, when you're mouth breathing, it changes the pH of the saliva and of your mouth so that you are more prone to cavities. Is that a measure of acidity? Yes, yes. So what we want is to be more neutral. So in the past, we've talked about soda and things like that. 
that decrease the pH. And so if it's acidic, the minerals in your enamel will leach out and you're much more prone to decay. That's one thing that can destroy tooth structure decay. The other thing that can destroy tooth structure is erosion. So when people have more trouble breathing through their nose and they breathe through their mouth, it also increases things like gastric reflux. So that will also decrease the pH and cause a more acidic environment. And something that we see in our practice is all of us as dentists are what we call non-carious lesions. So that means they're not breakdown of the tooth due to decay. They're breakdown of the tooth due to erosion of the tooth structure because of acid. Now, sometimes we see that in combination with what we think of as brushing too hard, and then people create areas of wear on their teeth. But when we're looking at that, we need to be thinking about, again, treating the patient that the teeth are attached to. And my role is to say, I see signs in your mouth that look like you may have too acidic an environment. And then they can go explore those options. I think another thing that people don't always think about is sometimes a a chronic cough that's not really related to any lung problem or any virus or any issue like that could be due to too much acid building up and it's an irritant in your throat, so you tend to cough. So there's a whole lot of hints about things, and my role as a dentist is to be aware of all of those things to try to help my patient be as healthy as possible. Dr. Manish Shafarik discussing are you sleeping and what the impact of your dental health is on that. We've done a lot of shows about grinding and clenching, which I guess to the folks that don't do that, they don't understand what a big deal it is. But the folks who do it, it's a big deal. Are you indicating that perhaps getting more sleep might reduce grinding and clenching and the impact that has? I am suggesting that. And what I have to say is there's an awful lot of people who are clenching and grinding who are not aware of it at all. And... Um, I am the one who has to show them and say, look how flat this tooth is. Something's happening that is causing that tooth structure to reduce. You can't do that by eating. You can't, you know, it's tooth against tooth because I can get them to match up. So if somebody actually does have sleep apnea, there's definitely an association with clenching and grinding at night. It's as if people are trying to move their jaw forward to open the airway during the night. And people will tell me, well, I can't be clenching and grinding because I snore. So sleep is a very active state. Even, I mean, we think of, oh, we're asleep, nothing's happening. Well, tons of things are happening, including your body saying, I have to be able to breathe. So your body will do what it takes to open the airway. And sometimes that includes clenching or grinding. The good news about that is if that's the reason you're clenching and grinding, if you treat the sleep apnea, then that can go away. People also have to adapt. So if we go back to the person we mentioned who might have an anterior open bite, well, they want to speak normally. So in order to avoid lisping, 
for them to bring two teeth together to make an S sound, let's say, they may have to bring their jaw in a different direction, and they may bang into the tooth on their way over to that place. And again, they've been doing it for so long, they may not be aware of it. So there's almost a map in the mouth if you look at clenching and grinding. So we see people maybe who are clenching, and we only see the wear and tear on their back teeth, or we only see the wear and tear on their front teeth, or it's only in a sideways direction. All of those things tell us that there's a time when those teeth are contacting. And the mantra I talk about is lips together, teeth apart. So that will help prevent a problem. But, you know, it's just like um, I have a dear friend who needs a hip replacement. Well, her bone is so worn that she can hardly walk on her hip. So she's adapting to that. But until somebody fixes the issue, it's going to continue to be a problem. So the same thing happens with people who are making adaptations and are not even realizing that are actually leading to things like joint pain and muscle pain. If you're someone out there who has to speak a lot and you feel like, wow, I'm so tired, it could be that you have some adaptation in your mouth, and if your bite was corrected, you might have an easier time. I'm trying that lips together, teeth apart thing, but I find when I do that, it's very difficult to talk on the radio. What you were just talking about, the adaptive changes, what is speech eating specifically? So um, a little bit about what we just talked about as far as lisp goes, but there's other sounds you have to make, and if you're... If you have a long-term history of not being able to breathe through your mouth, sometimes what happens is instead of the tongue, well, often what happens, instead of the tongue being in the roof of your mouth and making that palate nice and round, if that's happening, then your lower teeth will grow to match the upper teeth, and the lower arch, we call it, the bottom teeth, are going to be slightly narrower than the upper teeth and that's so that the top teeth come over the bottom teeth. Now, if you've had a breathing problem, from a long-term breathing problem, one of two things happens. Either your bone, your tongue rests in a forward position and pushes the teeth out, and you have a shallow floor of the mouth, but you have an underbite, so your bottom jaw is coming out farther than your top jaw, the other thing that can happen is people will open their mouth and drop the tongue back so that they can breathe, and that can give you what we call the class 2 bite, which is an overbite. Either one of those is an accommodation to the fact that the tongue didn't do its job to get things to grow to the right place. So for you to be able to speak normally you have to make some adaptations. And there's um, a dentist that I listened to a webinar with who actually is so interested in this. He's an oral maxillofacial surgeon. So if these problems are addressed when kids are young and you correct them instead of saying they'll grow out of it, most of them don't grow out of it. They grow into a bigger problem. But if that happens and you intervene, then the whole system will develop a whole lot better. So since he's the surgeon who ends up doing the surgeries to correct this problem, 
so the surgical problem becomes the top jaw is too narrow and the bottom jaw is too wide. So you have to do something surgically to make the top jaw wider. So that's very involved. What he realized is speech can give you a lot of clues to what's happening. So he actually videos his patients and watches their speech patterns. And it's pretty fascinating what we will do to accommodate. And people won't even realize that in order to say certain sounds, they're doing these extraordinary jaw movements. And then, you know, they walk around with jaw pain. And somebody tells them, oh, well, you have TMJ. That doesn't really fix the cause of the problem. Bernice, tell me about the roof of my mouth being the floor of my nose. So when you just mentioned, Wayne, that, yes, if you sleep better and don't walk and talk in your sleep, your teeth will be healthier, but I'm going to tell you that your entire body will be healthier, and that's a much more important issue. So the phrase that I use often is that the roof of your mouth is the floor of the nose. So if the roof of your mouth is not wide enough for your tongue to comfortably fit in the roof of your mouth, then the floor of your nose is probably not wide enough for you to breathe well. So if you're someone who maybe had a deviated septum corrected when you were young and it seemed to go back to be the same, that's, it's the same issue of not enough room or space. So you might be better off doing something about the width of your palate. So that leads me to the really important concept of, you know, what is, how, do, how does your face and oral cavity, how does that really function? Why is it so important? It's vital to be able to breathe, eat, and communicate. Those are like the standard for us to get through life. We have to be able to do those three things. And the easier it is for us to do them, the easier life we're going to have. So anything we can do to improve that situation as early as possible will help. And all of the things that I'm talking about the altered pattern of breathing where you're not breathing through your nose, it will change the way you breathe, the way you eat, and the way you communicate. So this is really important stuff. And we as dentists can look in people's mouths and often tell very quickly whether or not you have some of these problems. One easy way is when you breathe and fog up my mirror. You're not breathing through your nose if you're fogging up my mirror. Another thing is if I bring the chair back and you're not comfortable, you probably have a breathing issue also because in dentistry we have people lying on their back and they're flat. So that's the exact same difficult sleeping position that people have. And when you lay back like that, if you have these problems I'm talking about, it will close off your airway, and I get it. That doesn't feel good. You feel like you can't breathe and you can't swallow. But the problem is not just the position I'm putting you in. The problem is deeper than that. So as we talk about sleeping and the benefits that it has for oral and dental health, it raises the question, 
how much sleep? And I'm assuming that is a multiple choice answer. Um, it's a age related answer. So let me guess. Does that mean older? You don't need as much sleep, or does that mean you need more sleep as you age? No, it's so. So it depends on which age we're talking about. So, zero to three months, you need fourteen to seventeen hours. Four to twelve months, you need twelve to sixteen hours. One to two years old, you need eleven to fourteen. So the numbers are going down. Three to five years old, ten to thirteen. Six to twelve, you need nine to twelve hours. And this is a super important one. From age thirteen to eighteen, you need eight to ten hours of sleep. And then when you go eighteen to sixty, it goes to over seven hours. And basically seven to nine hours. As you get older, it's not that you need less sleep. It's that it's harder for you to have a good quality of sleep. The sleep changes. So you might see people who are waking up often during the night. But for all of us, if we correct some of these airway issues, we can sleep more. So the reason I said that 13 to 18-year-old age group, it's so important because there's a phenomenon called delayed onset of sleep. What that translates to is the night owls, the people who tell you, I just am not sleepy until like 11 or 12 at night. So in the general population, one study told me that there's about 1% of the population who are really night owls. But when that same study looked at teenagers, it went up to 16%. And I think it may even be higher than that because I think we've all witnessed trying to get teenagers to go to sleep because they have to be up for school so early in the morning. Well, their bodies and their rhythms just are not created that way. So what ends up happening is you have a lot of complaints from teachers in the first two periods of high school because the kids just are too sleepy to be paying attention. You know, if you're a parent driving your teenager to school, I bet a lot of you will say, yeah, they slept in the car on the way to school. So I'm a big proponent of changing the school times, and I know it messes up a lot of things, but there are schools in Connecticut who are changing. I just had a conversation with a principal, and, you know, it messes up the school schedule and all of that, but we've got to stop telling our teenagers that, well, if you just went to sleep earlier, then this wouldn't happen. I also suspect that some of the accidents we see with teenagers are because for 30 seconds or something, they fell asleep, and they're not even aware of it because their bodies aren't getting enough sleep. So there's definitely an association of motor vehicle accidents. Sounds like you're also saying there's been a couple of schools in the state that have moved up, meaning earlier, their start time for classes. Sounds like you don't approve of that. Oh, no. I mean, well, you can do that for the younger kids because most of them have no trouble falling asleep earlier, especially if we live our lives right. So by that, I mean a lot of the things that help us sleep are, you know, not to have a heavy meal right before you go to sleep, not to have your electronic devices on right before you go to sleep, having a set sleep and wake-up time. Even if it's the weekend, you really shouldn't be changing that because it changes your whole pattern. 
So it would be great for the elementary school kids to start earlier and the high schoolers to let them start later. And there's a lot of action in that direction because we're making decisions based on economics and convenience and not on what is the best educational environment for our young people. Do you get people who tell you, though, that, yes, I know I should get more sleep, but I lie down, I can't fall asleep, so I can't get as much sleep as I should? Right, and if that's the case, and you've done all the sleep hygiene things, you may be one of those night owl types, and then you better get a job that doesn't start at 5 o'clock or 6 o'clock in the morning if you know that about yourself. So... It is always wise, if you have that issue, to discuss it with your physician, and the wheels are rolling in the right direction, that people are starting to be more aware of sleep. It's still a battle sometimes to get people to pay attention to this because, you know, physicians are dealing with very complicated problems that they're trying to crisis intervention, management of those things, harder to think about for prevention the way that we do. But if you have someone who comes in and says, you know, I just toss and turn and I can't get to sleep, you can go for a sleep study and they can detect, you know, it's not just sleep apnea. It might be restless leg syndrome. It might be um, this delayed onset. And there are tricks that we can do to help people be healthier as long as we're aware of it. Some of my young patients, their parents will come back and say, well, I told the pediatrician what you said, and they said, oh, they'll just grow out of it. Well, more and more now I am getting people saying, oh, well, maybe we should pay attention to that. So with the young kids, the first line of defense is adenoids and tonsils. You know, you have to look and see. If those are too big, then you have to take those out and then monitor and see if the situation Improved. So if you're a parent and you've had that discussion and it doesn't seem to resonate with the pediatrician, what you need to do is to videotape your child sleeping. If they're snoring, then that's pretty striking, and that will make medical personnel pay attention. If they're a child that you know, is like a, a winding clock that like rotates and in the morning their feet are on their pillow and they're head is in the other direction, that's not healthy, restful sleep either. So those are some of the clues we have. And while your point this morning is people should be sleeping better for better dental health, it sounds to me like there's more than just dental consequences to poor sleep. You know, I tried to treat just teeth, but it's so true they never walk in all by themselves. They're always attached to this patient. And if I don't keep that whole patient healthy or help, then I can never just treat the teeth. And I think, unfortunately, in our society over the years, it has become this myth that teeth are somehow not attached to the rest of your body, and they definitely are. And attached to our local community is the Seroptimus Club of Willimantic, which you are longtime member of and very active in. And tell us what some of your programs are that are coming up with the Seroptimist. So we're ramping up our year. We had our first meeting on Wednesday. We normally meet the first Wednesday of the month. This month we are actually doing a social event. So if you want to come and learn more about us and have some fun, 
we will be meeting at the Lebanon Vineyard on September 24th from 3 to 6 p.m. And if you want to learn more about that, you can go on to SI Willimantic's Facebook, and there will be information there. The other program that I wanted to mention, because it's another program we've been doing for a while, and it's always hard to get candidates. Now, I know that there are people out there who are working to get their license in hairdressing or their license in dental assisting or dental hygiene or um, daycare providers have licensing and testing. They do CNAs and LPNs. Lots of professions require you to do some testing and certification. And sometimes you paid for your tuition to get through the program, but now it's just that last financial need of taking that test, we want to help you with that. So we will provide up to $500 for someone who has that situation for you to go ahead and do the testing, because there's usually a fee for the test. We'll also cover um, the gas, maybe, that you need to be able to get to the facility where you have to take the test. So it's a wonderful program. We have the funds available We need people to be talking about it. So let's say you're listening to the program and you're a volunteer with a job placement situation or you're working with people who are in recovery and they're trying to get a foot up and get into a job. We have those funds available, so so just contact us. Just like with some serious diseases, maybe like cancer, Bernice, What are the long-term advantages of early intervention, recognizing that someone is not getting proper sleep? It's um, a huge advantage, and it actually can decrease your chance of acquiring some cancers also, now that you mentioned that. Um, Sleep is just so, so important. And I think that um, when we talk about the... um, the effects of sleep, we talked a little bit about how much sleep do you really need. I think there are people out there who will say, oh, I don't need that much sleep. I actually had a close friend who was a dentist, and we used to go to courses together, and she always told me she only needed four or five hours of sleep. Well, we would be sitting in the lecture, and she always insisted on sitting right in front, and I spent most of my lecture nudging her because she was falling asleep. Now, when people do that, when they have what we call excessive sleep, uh, daytime sleepiness, often they're not aware of it. You know, it's that person who they're a passenger in the car and you realize they immediately fall asleep and you get somewhere and they're sort of startled. They don't think that they've been sleeping. Well, the problem becomes if you don't have that seven to nine hours of sleep, you don't go through all the stages of sleep that are what we call restorative. And as a child, some of those stages are actually helping the development of your brain. They are releasing growth hormone. They are, you know, in, in adults, there's definitely an association, well, adults and kids, an association with um, excess appetite and obesity and lack of sleep. And that's because one of the many things that happens while you're sleeping is you release a hormone that's an appetite suppressant because you're sleeping. You don't need to be hungry. If you're not getting the adequate amount of sleep, it messes up all of those systems we have for regulating, 
and there's actually another um, substance that's responsible for increasing appetite. So the balance of those two gets thrown off. So people feel like they're hungry. And you know, I think if you think about it in the long-term you know, protective evolution scheme, when we are not fully asleep, then our bodies say, oh, we have to eat to stay alive. So you get these consequences that you don't realize, and it's because you're not giving your body a chance to get through all of those stages of sleep. There are some people who, as they age, need to get up in the middle of the night to take the little walk down the hallway there, and some people every three hours, every two hours. That's interrupting sleep. What's the long-term detriment of that? So one thing that has to be studied with that is what the cause of that is, because basically when you are asleep, your urge to go to the bathroom is not what wakes you up. You wake up and then realize, oh, I need to go to the bathroom, because when you're sleeping, all of those functions are really shut off so that you can sleep without having that be an issue. So if you're waking up more than one, maybe two times a night, I would definitely have a discussion with your physician about that. Is there another problem going on? Um, you know, and I think that with sleep patterns, so the younger you are, the more what we call REM sleep you need. So there's rapid eye movement sleep and there's non-rapid eye movement sleep. And most of the things that restore our physical functioning happen during that non-REM sleep. And the things that help us deal with stress and emotions, and that's where dreaming comes in also, happens during REM sleep. So usually there are cycles of like 90 minutes where you go through deep sleep and then at the end of the cycle is the REM sleep. When, as you go through the night, those 90-minute cycles, REM sleep becomes more important towards the end of your sleep. So if you're someone who only does those four to five hours of sleep, you're never really getting that boost to help you deal with stressful and emotional situations. You wrote this phrase for me, and I have no idea what it means. The tongue as a long-term retainer. A lot of people know what retainers are, especially the head braces and things like that. But what does it mean, the tongue as a long-term retainer? So I mentioned that really if the system is working well and kids are doing their healthy breastfeeding and their tongue grows into the right position, you won't end up with crowded teeth or problems like that. And that's a concept that I bet is a little difficult for people to hear because they're so used to everybody just needs braces to correct the situation. Well, the teeth are supposed to sit in the bone in an upright position so they can match the opposing teeth. If the tongue is not in the right position, then the teeth can collapse and then they're not hitting in the right position anymore. So as an orthodontist, you can move teeth. That's not a problem at all. What is harder to do is to grow bone into the right spot. So that's where naturally your tongue, the pressure of your tongue and the pressure of your cheeks creates this 
shaped arch that should be perfect all the time unless we yeah. So if orthodontics is done to increase the amount of room there is in the palate, so the roof of the mouth is the floor of the nose, so if we make that wide enough that people can breathe easily, and if we make it wide enough, and we may need to train the tongue using myofunctional therapy to go into the right place because people have muscle memory and their tongue can go back to the bad position. If your tongue goes back to the bad position, it's going to help the teeth get crooked again. So if we looked at our orthodontic results as giving the tongue enough room to be in the appropriate position and then using myofunctional therapy to train it to stay in the right position, the tongue could be your retainer and you wouldn't have to worry about wearing your retainer every night. So as we wrap up our discussion about sleeping and the effect on dental health, what conclusions do we draw, Bernice? So early intervention can prevent uh, future metabolic, structural, and psychological issues. So we could probably impact things like ADD, ADHD, high blood pressure, obesity, all of those things just by getting kids trained and to have a structural system where they can sleep well. Um, dentists can help improve total health by recognizing those things. That's where we have an advantage because we're looking right into that system. And as soon as someone opens your, their mouth, if their tongue is blocking the back of their throat, then you know that that's not a healthy breathing position. So somebody should intervene at that point. We talked about um, teeth not coming in straight because the tongue is not in the right position and people aren't breathing adequately. So the tongue pay, plays a, a key role. And then the bottom line is if we go by sometimes the medical model, as I said, is you don't treat the heart problem until someone has a heart attack. You don't treat you know, sleep apnea until someone has AFib or has a car accident and then you realize, oh, there's a sleep problem. We would be well-served to tra change our approach. When people come into my office, I am very aware of that. And when you look into someone's mouth and it looks like they're having difficulty with their airway, you can just ask some questions. Now, sometimes I will ask the questions, and most of the answers indicate that there might be a sleep problem then people have to do things that may be hard for them. And one of those is to arrange and go ahead and do a sleep study. Now, I, a lot of people don't want to do that because they don't want to hear that they have sleep apnea or they don't want to be told that they have to use a CPAP machine. Well, nobody can force you to do anything. I mean, there are certain things that insurance pays more for. So unfortunately, sometimes people go in a direction that the insurance dictates. But just finding out about the problem, I mean, the simple phrase of lips together, teeth apart, try to breathe through your nose more, that can already make a huge impact on your life. And I know there's a lot of you out there who have temp temporomandibular joint problems, or you wake up with headaches, all of those things could have something to do with the amount of sleep that you're getting. So it's something that we really need to be 
paying attention to. So don't sleep on this issue. Even in my nap this afternoon, I'll be thinking about what we talked about with Dr. Bernice Shafarik, Are You Sleeping? Program brought to you by Shafarik Dental on Route 66 East in Columbia. They are on the web at shafarikdental.com and also on Facebook at Shafarik Dental. That's S-Z-A-F-A-R-E-K. Bernice, thanks for joining me this morning. Thank you, Wayne. 14 WILI Willimantic and 95.3 FM.